several women have asked to know more about the goddesses on the altars. Um, and I, I want to just tell you my own experience with these goddesses. Um, I've had a very ambivalent relationship with uh, Buddha's statues, goddess statues. I've recently admitted to my ambivalence. And, um, you know, I was thinking about today, what was, what, where's that ambivalence? I, I looked at these, you know, these embodiments and I was thinking, you know, this is outrageous. Who would dress like this? <laughs> I mean, if I hadn't met Prajnaparamita in Bali, where everything is outrageously beautiful, I could have never seen her. I would have been in an extreme denial about her beauty. Um, and then there's the more pertinent point of, you know, they're too inaccessibly magnificent. How could I relate to this beauty? So I began to study them, noticing my aversion and sort of ambivalence. And I began to realize the importance of these uh, Buddha figures, goddess figures in our midst, is that they offer the possibility, they suggest the possibility, that the qualities which we are hearing about, which we intuitively sense or know, which sort of fleetingly pass through our awareness, are actually, actually can be embodied in human form. And here, not only in human form, but actually in female form. So as I began to open to them and, and sit with them and, and move with them a little bit, I began to notice, more than anything, their hands. This, the way in which in each, in each gesture, in each posture, the hands are held with such grace there's the, um, there's the rice goddess. This is the Balinese rice goddess in this corner. The way she holds this stalk of rice, just... I have actually a, another rice goddess at home. Um, it took me years of living with this rice goddess before I realized it wasn't part of her body. <laughs> She's so connected to this stalk of, of rice, whatever, the, the living reality that she's holding is like part of her body. And then there is the, uh, the, moon, the moon goddess riding on the dragon, and the way her hands touch the tail of the dragon and the face of the dragon, like this. Quite magnificent. And then there are the the Kuan Yin's, the, the Taras, the female, the female Buddha, the, t- the standing female Buddha here, the Uma, who uh, also was carved by Oka, the artist who carved Prajnaparamita. I found her in his studio in Bali, and I said, who is this? <laughs> he said, oh, this is Uma, female Buddha. She's, she's holding, in one hand, the water, and in the other hand, um, sort of a, a, um, uh, a leaf. 
with which to bless for blessings. So the water blessing, the leaf and the water, and she blesses with the water. So the way she holds these simple gestures, some are classic mudras, the way the hands are held. Some are just these very simple postures. My favorite is actually this one. (laughs) Royal ease. So somehow I begin, I've begun to have a new relationship and I invite you to study and be with all of these, uh, these images. Somehow, um, for me, they're a little bigger than life. And I usually leave the bigger than life stories to Deborah. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but tonight I have uh, what I, I think uh, we, might, what we might think of as the descent version of the hero's story. And um, it's a, a bigger than life story which, I, which comes back to me over and over again, in which I... I would like to share with you tonight. It's a very old story from the land of Samaria. It's a story of the goddess Inyana. A story about seeking wholeness, just as we enter into a retreat like this, into the spiritual path, seeking wholeness. It's also, I think, a, a story in which uh, the open secret is revealed, the open secret about how it is the gift of compassion which allows liberation, which actually allows awakening and that wholeness which we seek. And so I will also like to uh, weave in the the personal story, uh, a story about my first backpacking trip into the Grand Canyon. (laughs) Can you see it? (laughs) So so we begin with this story, which some of you will will know, the story of the descent of Inyana. Inyana is the queen of heaven and the queen of earth. And she chooses, chooses, to go down into the underworld. Her descent is an initiation, a spiritual journey. She doesn't know about the underworld, the great below, the great unknown. The underworld is a primal world, the matrix of all being. She's going to learn about the land of death. And so Inyana takes this journey because intuitively she knows that without this awareness, her understanding of life will necessarily be limited. There are times for, for each of us when we take up a path, we make a choice, a path of spiritual practice, a path of uh, work in the world, a path of relationship or of solitude. And we choose that path because we intuitively know that our understanding of life is somewhere incomplete. 
So as Anyana did, we have each stepped out of our familiar world to come on this retreat, to this silence and to this solitude. Some way we have undertaken in these days the challenge of being with ourselves in a new way, of being with life in a new way, which is actually always unknown. There's something about retreats uh, which is always unknown, even if you've done it 20 times or 20 years. So before Inyana sets out on her journey, she carefully clothes herself in all of her symbols of power and identity. She has a crown. She has a lapis lazuli necklace. She has a breastplate. She has a golden bracelet, a robe, seven ornaments in all. And in the Sumerian language, it's very interesting what these are called. M-E, me. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) I had to find those two different sources to make sure this was not a joke or a misprint. In Sumerian, this word means the attributes of civilization or the attributes of identity. These were the symbols of her identity as a personal self, as an of her individuality, of her separate self. It makes me think about how we each enter into a retreat space with our chosen accoutrements, which you may may have considered a little or a great deal. Perhaps you brought some special ritual object or jewelry or a photograph or journal, or a a book that you tucked into your bag. All of the things which we, we think might help to support us, to take care of us, as we enter into the unknown. So for my canyon trip, I had just the right backpack. (laughs) Carefully loaded with only the things which I knew I I would need. I knew that I would need these things. I really would need them. (laughs) Very carefully chosen. And for each of these journeys, there's this, there's a sense of simplicity, of taking just what is needed, just what will somehow care for us. Now, I want to pause here to remind you and myself that in the story of Inyana, as in all such timeless stories, we may choose to see all of the characters as parts of ourselves. So let yourself uh, stay open to that possibility. The underworld, the great unknown, is the domain of Inyana's sister, Areshkigal, who, as the grain goddess, was once the ruler of the great above. Now she has been exiled to the great below, which under patriarchy has become a dread place, a place of no return. 
Ibiza. In the underworld, Ereshkigal eats clay and drinks dirty water. Actually, no one's ever laughed at that part before. (laughs) It's a really loosened up group. (laughs) All right, compose yourselves. (laughs) This is serious. (laughs) Okay. Actually, I was really worried that it was too serious. Is it my delivery? <laughs> okay. Areshkigal's husband is dead. This, this Just, I just got this flash of um, the only movie that we've watched in six months is the <laughs> what's that um, the Muppets Christmas Carol <laughs> <laughs> the Marleys were dead <laughs> oh, dear I'm sorry this always happens to me in Dharma talks I can't do it anymore. (laughs) Oh, dear. Mm. They always put me at the end, so it's like comic relief, right? (laughs) Ah. Okay. Let's see if we can do this. It's about to get heavy. I'm glad you laughed. Reshkigal's husband is dead, and she is full of rage, greed, desperation, and loneliness. She has no feeling for the relationships of others. So rather than welcome Inyana to the underworld, I can't quite see what welcoming to the underworld would be like. Instead of welcoming Inyana to the underworld, well, this is how you would welcome someone to the underworld, right? Ereshkigal is enraged with jealousy for Inyana's full and happy life. And so as Inyana passes through the seven gates, she is stripped of all of her possessions, one at each gate, all her powers. She's empty. So Ereshkigal is giving... Inyana a gift. She wants Inyana to understand the experience of loss, of vulnerability, of grief, of death. And finally, Inyana is killed and her corpse is hung on the wall. Pause. A friend of ours, um, China Galland, wrote a book, which you might have seen, uh, about women all over the world who are, experience, are experiencing, have experienced extreme 
extreme abuse, loss, uh, extreme suffering. And uh, I don't think she would mind me telling you this. <laughs> I just started telling it. <laughs> like, well, this is kind of personal. I don't think she would mind, though. When she came back, she said to a group of women friends, I feel like I'm still hanging on the wall after talking to all those women and, and uh, writing the book. So this image of hanging on the wall is a very powerful image. It's a very helpful image. It's good to have an image sometimes, which really describes how you feel. So, you know, sometimes we come into these retreats and uh, we have a really sweet time. And we have a lot of rest and we feel really nourished and content. And then other times, you know, we just get to go home to the darkness, to the, to the place where the one who uh, knows how to live in the outside world just dies. And... And the one who is competent and knows how to take care of things and how to make things happen in the world just has a chance to let go. And, and so there may be retreats, there may be days, there may be years, there may be an hour when we are each plunged into that place, our own underworld. Whatever it may be for each of us, our moments of, or years of, or journeys of grief, of longing, our despair, our depression, our confusion. For each of us, it might take a different form. But in a retreat, we are often offered the opportunity to include in our awareness whatever we have not had the opportunity to include in the busyness of our lives. To understand that this too is part of life. That death is part of life. That grieving is part of life. And that finally, it must all be felt, it must all be seen, it must all be known and included in some way. And so now Areshkagal goes into great pain. It is as if she's in mourning, it's as if she's in labor. She's crying out, oh my body, oh my body. She's crying out, oh my heart. Oh, my heart. She's crying out, Oh, my back. Oh, my back. It does sound like a retreat, doesn't it? Oh. <laughs> and it also sounds like birthing. Oh, my back. Oh, my belly. And so, meanwhile, up above, Inyana's servant realizes Inyana has been gone for three days. And before she left, Inyana said to her, If I'm not back in three days, go for help. And so 
Inyana's servant goes to the god of wisdom. Now, another version of the story, I've read several, another version says that she went to the god of nature. So let's say she went to the god of wisdom and nature, which seems to fit, doesn't it? That those would be this one and the same. So she goes to the god of wisdom and nature, and the god of wisdom and nature sends two beings two beings who are as big as flies and who are neither male nor female and gives one of them the water of life and the other the food of life. And the God of wisdom and nature has also given these two beings the gift of compassion. And this is the turning point of the story, the key of the story, I think. These little empathetic beings have the gift of being able to stay present in the face of pain. There's another story that came to mind um, yesterday as I was thinking through the Inyana story, which I want to just put a little footnote here for those of you who know it. It's the story of the Fisher King, of the um, of Percival going to look for the Holy Grail and the, the Fisher King and the Lady of the Lake, and they're guarding the Holy Grail. And Sir Percival comes, and the first time he arrives, he is so uh, distracted by this lovely lady of the lake and his longing for the Holy Grail and his journey and his knighthood and everything, he doesn't notice that the fisher king is lying, bleeding on his couch. And he's just, he, he doesn't ask the right question. He doesn't say the right thing because he has no capacity at that point for love for compassion. He doesn't even see the wound. And as the story goes, he has to go through a long journey of awakening before he can know that, before he could be present enough in that moment to just, ah, uncle, what ails you? He can be present for the obvious moment when the appropriate response is, of course, compassion. So I both uh, understand and do not understand that story, but it's a footnote for you, for you and your future study. So these little beings go down into the underworld. And they go near to Ereshkigal, and they find her in great pain. And when Ereshkigal says, Oh, my body, they say, Oh, your body. And she says, Oh, my heart. And they say, Oh, your heart. And when Ereshkigal says, Oh, my back, they say, Oh, your back. 
And pretty soon Ureshkigal notices this. She notices them. She says, who is this moaning and groaning with me? Who is this? She says, who are you? It's as though she somehow um, is realizing, oh, how can I thank you? I'll give you a gift. And they say, we don't want a gift. We just want that corpse on the wall. And she says, oh, that is your queen. And they say, we know. We just want the corpse. And so they pour the water of life on Anyana's corpse. And then they give Anyana the food of life. And she begins to awaken. And Inyana begins to return to herself in this new, this new form. And she begins to get ready to leave. And as the story goes, there is a rule that no one can leave the underworld unless someone takes their place. And so the story goes that Inyana's husband must go down, and then his sister must go down. So the story is, each of us must go down at some time into the great unknown to learn about death and grief. Just as there are seasons of the year, there are seasons of our lives, seasons of our hearts. So, now we've returned to the Grand Canyon. The trip I took into this canyon was, it was actually a side canyon of the Grand Canyon. It was a canyon called the Little Colorado. And it was a trip which none of us in this group had ever made. But we had heard about it. We'd heard stories about it from a friend. Um, And he promised a, a um, let's see, what, what is the phrase that I, I was hearing all, several times? Um, scenic, let's see, I can't remember exactly, something like spectacularly scenic or um, something like that. Travertine pools, tidal pools at the bottom of the canyon after the journey along the edge of the side of the canyon, winding down at the bottom it was promised there would be these beautiful pools. Now, mind you, it was June, a little late to be going into the desert, but it was the best time we had, and we were really, really excited about this. Um, I was the least experienced of the group. I had more experience with inner journeys than with (laughs) wilderness journeys. I I had the sort of image that it would be something like a meditation retreat. So that was as far as I got with my ideas. But I had my backpack, so I was ready. <laughs> it turned out to be a little more like the descent of Inyana than I had anticipated. <laughs> there turned out to be no real trail. <laughs> Every now and then we saw a trail marker, which sort of said, go right, or go left. Actually, a lot like a meditation retreat. <laughs> um, I had no choice 
very quickly, but to become totally concentrated, because the the path was either these tiny little rocks, which were very slippery, and it was like a, a big exposure, like this canyon wall. We were going winding down this canyon wall. Um, or there were these boulders, which we had to climb over. Uh, so the sun was blazing hot. It was getting hotter by the minute. We got sort of a late start. We should have been on the road a little bit earlier. I don't... <laughs> So you're starting to get the picture. My, pretty soon my mind completely stopped. It was so hot. The heat, the exertion, the fear, which of course was in my unconscious. It was right back there in my shadow. <clears throat> we thought we would be down to water in five hours. We weren't. We kept thinking the trail would level off. It didn't. At some point, I somehow ended up in front of the path, uh, of, the, of the little trail of people walking down the path and as I came around a corner I saw this rock and under the rock was a little um, place of uh, shade at this point it was the only shade was under rocks (laughs) and in the shade of course was this beautiful rattlesnake just curled right in front of me as I came around the corner ah it shook me it, it did something. I don't know what it did. It did something. It kind of woke me up. It kind of terrified me. <laughs> I realized I was in the desert, and it was really hot, and, and I was still walking, and I, I uh, wasn't thinking. <laughs> I was sort of in my body, but not much. It was about this time, and I was unaware of how much I needed to rest and... Um, since my mind had stopped and I was sort of disconnected from my body, I really didn't realize how shaky I had gotten. And I, at this, about this point, I lost my footing and fell. And I rolled as far as the nearest scrubby little bush, which stopped me, which is about 30 feet. And as I was rolling, um, I was getting disoriented enough that I couldn't, there was no way to do anything. I had no choice but to let go and just relax because what else was I going to do? <laughs> I couldn't reach anything. I couldn't grab anything. I couldn't even tell which was up or down. So afterwards, uh, my companions attributed my lack of serious injury to the fact that I, I let go. Uh, um, and also my backpack probably saved me from the rocks. <laughs> So I was badly bruised, but I could walk. And we sat down, and we considered our options. Um, we realized we had to keep going because we were committed. We were hopefully close to water. We were too, it was too far to go back. And what we decided was, I think maybe I didn't decide this, but someone decided this, <laughs> that if I just left my backpack here, that I could walk down the rest of the way. It sounded like a reasonable solution to them. <laughs> so um, we took out my, my sleeping bag and something else, a couple other little items that somebody decided I needed. <laughs> um, and, uh, and we continued down. And you can imagine, I was so uh, vulnerable. I felt completely stripped. I felt bare. I was already stripped and bare, but now 
I didn't have a backpack. <laughs> and um, so, uh, you know, it's like this sometimes. It's, it's just bare, bare, bare. Um, my favorite description of this is from T.S. Eliot. Called it a condition of complete simplicity, costing nothing less than everything. You know, we may not have to literally lose our things. We may not necessarily have to lose all of our identities. But it seems that as we awaken to the nature of life, we, we get the message different ways, different, uh, often not so easy ways, that we just can't hold on to anything, that, that nothing is permanent. We can't hold on to... Uh, nothing is permanent in the way that we have thought, that we can't stake our identities on what we have, on our bodies, on our companions, that everything is really uh, fragile, that life is just so fragile. And in a moment, it can, everything can change. So as we made camp for the night, um, we finally did find some water. It wasn't exactly pristine travertine pools with, you know, bubbles coming out of limestone or anything, but there was enough water that we could purify it and, and uh, replenish our supplies. So we made camp for the night. I was dependent upon others for warmth, for food, for cover. And here were these empathetic companions offering me the best of what they had, their precious water, their dried strawberries. I can still remember the taste of those dried strawberries. Just, ah. I was so touched by those, those gifts, those simple gifts. Someone gave me a down uh, vest to use as a pillow, to roll up and turn into a pillow. <clears throat> Expressions of their compassion, their understanding. Yes, it's hard sometimes. It's hard. They stayed with me. It was about this time as I was lying on a rock in the sun, and the sun was beginning to set, and everyone else was making camp, and I was just kind of checking to see how big the bruise was going to be, <laughs> that I started to think about Inyana. And I, I, re- I realized, um, as someone said, sometimes you need a story more than food. It helps to have a story, to have to know someone else has uh, also gone into the unknown and faced her fears. Not just any someone, but the goddess. And so we can realize that we too have a choice. In that moment we can face our fear as the goddess. In our meditation practice, we give this gift to ourselves. We give each other uh, this gift just by being present, just by staying in the room, actually. 
with each other. And by staying open to whatever arises, to all the struggles, to all the adventures, you know, we sit with everything here. And by meeting the moment as the goddess, you know, meeting ourselves with compassion, oh, my back, oh, my body, oh, my heart, all those moments, gradually we begin to come back to life. And there is, somehow there is new wisdom about life. There is new understanding about the nature of things. That everything is worthy of our attention. That we can get big enough to include even this. That nothing really can be left out. Or our understanding of life will be somehow not yet whole. So we go down into our fears, our anger, our sadness, our longing. And we begin gradually to learn to to feel it, to know it, to name it, to stay with it. The morning that we walked out of the canyon, I woke up early, and there wasn't any planning in this, but I I think also I didn't have much to get ready. I didn't have anything. So So I, um, I got ready. I said, you know, I think I'll start walking up. We were down in the canyon, and of course the path up was going to go like this. We could see the path from where we were, and I said, you know, I think I'm just going to get started. And so I, I, I led the way out. I started off. I realized, oh, I can find the markers. Oh, I see. This, I do see the trail. I kept, kept my companions in sight, but I just very gently began to make my way up at my own pace. I just wound my way up. I paused to rest when I needed to. That was a different experience. And I began to see the beauty, the magnificence of this canyon. The incredible shapes and colors and, and um, shadows of this extraordinary place. Also, I understood by this time that there was only one way out. <laughs> Which really helped me with my... my uh, commitment. (laughs) And I also knew the consequences of not walking mindfully step by step and not pausing to rest myself as appropriate. So Anyana also returned from the great below. She returned with a more complete understanding of life and of death. She could now understand the entire cycle of life from birth to death to rebirth. After her journey to the great below, Inyana took on the powers of death, of rebirth, and emerged as the goddess who, who rules over the three worlds, heaven and earth and the great below. She had come to include in her awareness all the parts of life, so nothing could surprise her anymore. 
Nothing could surprise her. Nothing could overwhelm her. Somehow she had found within herself that whatever arose, she had space for it. She had become big. I want to just make a footnote here that one of the important aspects of the story is that Anyana chose to undertake this initiation. She chose it. This makes it much easier for her to receive, to surrender to the lessons, to integrate the lessons. As the story goes, when it's her husband's turn, her husband's sister's turn to go down into the underworld, they resist, and it's much more difficult for them. I've noticed this um, is often the difference between people I work with in retreats and people who I've worked with who are working with facing death. Although they've been offered the highest initiation, the dying meditation, it's very hard to choose to receive that for many people. For many people, it is received. But there's something about undertaking, as we have each done here, undertaking this journey that has that quality, that consciously or unconsciously, we each came here. To whatever degree we could choose consciously, we chose to be here. We've undertaken the discipline, the silence, as allies on our spiritual journey. It's easier to choose to accept the initiation which is offered to us, whatever it is. It's easier to fully engage if we undertake it, not as a victim, but as the goddess. So if you find yourself forgetting why you come to retreats, why you came here, let yourself remember that you're practicing here for the great initiations, for the moments of life which you do not want to miss, which you do not want to miss. For each of us, the stories of initiation, of facing death, of loss, of vulnerability will be a little different. But somehow we're practicing for, for the moments when we don't want to space out, when we don't want to miss the next step. Maybe it's the moment of, of seeing your child, of a moment of seeing um, yourself clearly, a moment of seeing the beauty of the world, a moment of falling in love, moments when you don't want to go away. But somehow, however life comes to us with its challenges, one thing is clear, that it helps to cultivate this capacity, which we have been 
cultivating here, the capacity to hold attention, to be able to stay present in the face of whatever arises, to allow all of life to become our teacher, our teacher of the greatest mysteries, of the greatest compassion. So let's just be quiet for a moment, just as you are. Let the words let the words dissolve into you. Into the space which holds us all. So please take just a few minutes to stand and go out. Many of you left your stick as you were asked to do outside and get your stick for the uh, ritual and come back in and take your seat. In about five minutes, we'll start the ritual. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.